Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 197. I'm your host, Derek Moore. And this week, the Fed wants you to lose your job. No, they really do. All right. Maybe not exactly, but I'll get to that. And then it's that time of year. And we'll certainly have our 2023 predictions out. Uh, hopefully nobody listened to them last year. But it's that time of year when the, the major investment banks start to, to really post their, their numbers, their expectations. And I got to tell you, folks, it's not good. Now, I will say that when we release ours, and we said this last year with a caveat, you know, we don't try and make predictions on the market. We're not placing bets or trades based upon where the S&P is going to be. We, we buy the market. In general, we, we hedge, we buffer in the majority of the strategies that we do, certainly our core strategies. But this year, it's bearish. So the S&P closed at 4,071 on Friday. I'm recording this over the weekend. And uh, Sam Rowe had tweeted this out. He has a list of all the investment banks and what their S&P 500 2023 year-end targets. And these are as of December 4th. Well, it's not great. Barclays has the target at 3,675. That would be a decline of 9.73% from Friday's close of 4071. And remember, they're not saying what the low, absolute low of the year will be, what the absolute high. These are the targets. I believe these are for the end of the year. Uh, 3,800, Society General, uh, Capital Economics, 3,900, Morgan Stanley, UBS City, right at 4,000, B of A, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Credit Suisse, 4050. Uh, RBC 4100, JP Morgan, Jefferies 4200, BMO 4300, 4300 to 5000, Wells Fargo, they're hedging a little bit, giving a range, and Deutsche Bank at plus 4500. So, really, when you look at the range of estimates on the low end, it's minus 9.73% expected uh, price return based upon you know, these, these uh, predictions or targets. I guess we call them targets and plus 10.54%. So considering the markets, you know, closed at 4071, I mean anything less than that, they're expecting year over year price to the price gain to be well not a gain, uh, a loss. And even at 4200, that would be just plus 3.17%. So it's pretty bearish. And so why am I bringing this up? Well, I like to look at these and I've mentioned this before that within, you know, if you do a Google search, you can actually, and I think it's only available on the desktop version, but if you do this Google search and you go in and you got to go up top and you basically restrict the search results to a certain time. So I went in and I said, year end. Uh, 2022 year-end S&P 500 targets, but I limited the search between December 1st and December 31st of 2021, so last year. And what I found was that they were really wrong last year, really wrong. And, and by the way, we're wrong all the time too. Markets are tough. To that's why we don't try and predict markets. You just buy, you hedge, and 
More often than not, markets are up, and that's good for investors. But the low end last year was Morgan Stanley. Uh, this is according to a Forbes article. They said the year-end target for the S&P was 4,400. Again, we finished yesterday at 4,071. Of course, the, the year is not done yet. Uh, Wells Fargo had the index hitting 5,300. So that's 1,300 points off. And, you know, U.S. Bank, it looks like they saw 5,060. And, you know, I can go through these. But basically, and this is according to FactSet, I think FactSet had the, the average and the median estimate somewhere around 5,200. Kind of looking through my, uh, my notes here uh, to see what that winds up being. But they wound up being pretty far off, right? Nope, I just found it. 52.25 was the aggregate prediction of the S&P 500, according to FactSet on December 9th of 2021. So I don't know if they moved at all between then and the end of the year. And what's interesting is, you know, they started out much lower and they, they sort of rose their, their estimates up from what they originally were. This year, I think estimates started higher, especially on earnings. And then those estimates have come down. So what does this mean? Maybe nothing. I mean, honestly, could mean nothing, could mean something. I will say that if you're a contrarian, you're, you're kind of doing the whole contrarian take, you'd say, well, it's probably good that people aren't that bullish. And maybe that means that the marginal seller or marginal buyer, I guess marginal seller, we'll say, has already sort of adjusted their portfolio, meaning marginal seller, we just say, you know, the next person that's going to sell. So has everybody sold who's left to sell? I don't know. I don't know. You know, we'll give you our predictions and tell you how bad we'll do in 23. We'll also review 2022. We'll do that show later in the year before the year end. But I do think it's just from a contrarian standpoint, it's probably good that people are pretty bearish. In hindsight, the market never got to 52.25 and never even touched there and then came back down. Uh, so this is interesting. We'll see what happens in, uh, in 2023. But I just, you know, and you can do this. Uh, if you go to, you know, really, if you just go to Google and Google has a function that you can actually go in here, let me just uh, kind of do this for you here. So if you go in and, and you go to google.com, I'm doing this right now from memory, and you go to tools, do this on the desktop, and the drop down says anytime or all results. Click on anytime, and then you can put in a custom range, and then you just see the results that came out in that custom range. And that's how I do it when you know people come out with hey, the market's going to fall 80%. I look who predicted that. I go back into different years and I Google that same person, that same prediction. I see how many times they predicted that. So anyway, just kind of interesting. The street is definitely bearish. Don't know if that means anything or not. We'll find out. All right. And now let's get to why the Fed wants you to lose your job. I'm being sarcastic. But in some ways, I'm not because... The Fed has been raising interest rates, 
And obviously, they, they would like for there to be a slowdown in inflation. They don't want necessarily the economy to do too good. It's this weird conundrum where bad news is sort of good news, maybe, and good news is bad news, I guess. The unemployment numbers came out, and it turns out, and no surprise here, by the way, these investment banks are really good at what they do. They're great analysts, and they put out forecasts. And I know a lot of people are critical of them because sometimes they don't get it right. But I will say that a lot of people who make comments aren't producing or putting out their expectations every month where you could go back and see, hey, who was right, who was wrong. But it was definitely on the high side. And then when you look at the, the numbers, uh, it looks like leisure and hospitality added you know, something like 88,000 jobs, education and health, 82,000 jobs. The, the number was something around 270,000. So think about this. The Fed is raising rates and they want inflation to stop, but yet there's, there's jobs being added uh, according to the payrolls. Uh, where they're losing is actually trade and transport, minus almost 50,000. You know, what's interesting about the trade and transport, I follow freight waves and people make fun of me for following the shipping container rates and things like that. But sometimes I like to look in non-obvious areas to tell me ahead of time what's going on in the economy. And on freight waves, uh, there was a story that caught my eye that there was a trucking company and they're actually doing some layoffs. I don't pretend to know, you know everything about the trucking business, obviously. And why were they doing layoffs? Did they overhire? And now they don't need as many people. I don't know. But one of the comments was that we actually saw the need or the, uh, the amount of freight that needed to be transferred or, or uh, you know, traveled, whatever you call it, picked up and brought somewhere. How's that? that that actually has fallen quite a bit. And the demand for trucking has fallen off. Again, I don't know if they overhired or not. I don't pretend to know about this industry. But I thought that was interesting because I saw that and then I saw the, the trade and transport numbers were the worst of the group. So kind of interesting. Also, temporary help was down 17,000. I don't know if that means that stores, you know, people are shopping online and they don't need you know, it used to be workers would hire extra people or companies would hire extra workers around the holidays, but uh, temporary work is down. But let's come back to employment. And basically what happens is they release something called a non-farm payroll number. And why do they call it non-farm? Well, it's all employees, total non-farm. And, you know, according to the, I'm looking here at Fred, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Approximately covers about 80% of workers who contribute to gross domestic product. It excludes uh, proprietors, private household employees, unpaid volunteers, farm employees, and unincorporated self-employed. So I guess that's if you haven't formed, you know, a sole proprietorship or an LLC or an S-Corp. Actually, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to dig into this. Or if you let me know, send me an email at Derek.Moore at zegafinancial.com. That's D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Z as in zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple. Financial is up to you to spell correctly, uh, but let me know on that. And so the number was 153,548 in November versus 153,285 
uh, in October, so plus 263,000 jobs according to the non-farm uh, payroll. Uh, there's also this employment level and there's a household survey, which is different than a business survey. Um, interestingly enough, the household survey, I may have to dig into this a little more. The household survey uh, was 158,936,000 in September, and it was only 158,470,000. So that is a lower level on that. There's, this gets a little bit wonky, but let me just explain real quick what people are looking at. And let me tell you why I don't think it's the number. I think it's actually the wages that matter here. And so when you're looking at unemployment, you look at the working age population, 15 to 64. It's about 207,411,000 and change. And then you measure the unemployed persons. Now, unemployed, people will be considered unemployed. They have to be, they have to want a job or they have to be looking for a job. So like if you casually, yeah, I'd, I'd work. And they call you and all this stuff is surveys. And so people get surveyed and you know, they get asked, do you have a job? No. Or yes. And have you been looking for work? Oh, no. Okay. Uh, someone who wants a job that isn't looking for work is not considered unemployed. They're not part of the labor force. And the labor force participation rate ticked lower. It's right around 62%. So we think about that, the working age population, and you say, well, how many of those people are actually part of the labor force. Those are people who are either employed or they're looking for work if they're unemployed. Uh, and that's only about 128,802,000. I say about, but I'm, I'm reading these off the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And basically you come up with, you know, it's the unemployed persons and then there's seasonal adjustments and some different things like that. But they, they wind up after you seasonally adjust everything, they want to put 3.7% is the unemployment rate. That's the participating labor force. And then they look at everyone who has a job and everyone who doesn't have a job but wants one and is actively working. And then we'll go through the, the measurements that they actually do. And there's something that's kind of interesting too. And I think, you know, I've known about this for a while, but the demographic aspect of this is I think going to be, I don't know if it's a big deal or it's just, it's trending down. And what, what do I mean by that? The working age population, age 15 to 64, that's all persons for the United States. You know, and this only goes back to 1978. And, you know, 1978, the growth in working age population was about 1.7, 1.8%. Uh, the highest I saw it was in 2000, up 2.19%. So how do people, how does this number change? Well, obviously it's, it's measured and there's no perfection with any measurement, but essentially it's how many people in the U.S. are part of the working age population, age 15 to 64. So how could that be affected? Well, you could have people dying, um, now, you might say people are born, too, but remember, they're not part of the working age population when they're born. People aren't born at age 20. They're born at age zero, or you get the picture there. And 
so you could have people, um, you know, pass away, unfortunately, right? That, that would, uh, you could have people leave the U.S. Uh, you also could have people come to the U.S. And I wonder, by the way, in 2000, uh, with the tech boom and the tech mania, did we have a lot of uh, foreign workers come to the U.S. for tech jobs? I don't know. But what's interesting, though, is if I look in 1978 to a little bit before the, you know, 2007, the year before the financial crisis, that was growing, you know, by, I'll say on average, 1.25%. I haven't done the math. I'm just eyeballing it. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very much. Remember, the working age population is about 207 million right now. It was higher back then. And so a 1% change would be you're adding, you know, 2 million workers. Well, in 2017, we actually almost had a decline. It was up, you know, 0.007. All right. And then you look at when we did have a decline, 2019, we had a decline. First time, you know, going back to 1978, a decline in 2020, and then a decline in 2021. 2021 is minus 0.33%. So what does that mean? It means that if you look at a demographic, demographic, that's the way to say it, right? Yeah, I'm going to say it that way. Uh, a little bit of a shift. And what that means is the working age population is not growing in the last couple of years. And so that could be people aging out of that population. Meaning, you know, let's say you had 207 million people. And then the next year, a million people let's assume nothing else changed, turned 65, we'd say, well, now your working age population has to be 206 million or a million, you know, people got H1 visas or, you know, whatever. And they, and they came to the U.S. and they started to work. Uh, that would be an increase in, in the working age population or vice versa if people leave. So that is, it's interesting because this goes back to supply and demand. And when the working age population shrinks, there are less, quote unquote, available workers for everybody to hire. And it, it's just something to watch. And I don't know if it's impacting things right now or not, uh, but I did find it interesting. It's been trending down and it's negative for the past couple of years. Uh, so that's, that's something to watch. But more than just the numbers, the Fed does not want a wage spiral. I think Chairman Powell actually talked about a wage spiral in one of his press conferences. And the Atlanta Fed, I'm going to pull up an Atlanta uh, Fed wage tracker. They have one that looks at the growth of wages. And it's, it's a pretty good tool because you can segment uh, based upon, you know, different groups. You can do age, gender, education, uh, full or part-time occupation. Uh, I think you can probably do uh, educate, yeah, education level. But when you look at the wage tracker, uh, overall unweighted was 6.4% in October. And I know we just had November. I know the wage growth came out and that was 5%. And those numbers are a little bit different because the wage growth tracker is a three-month moving average of the median wage growth hourly data. And you can kind of see, you know, starting, let's say, uh, May of 21, it was the, you know, the lowest low recently. And then you just started to see it come up. And 
that is what the Fed, I believe, is, is really worried about. And so I think sometimes we're focused on the, the number of jobs, but really it's wages because the more people make, the more they can spend, the more it's sort of a circular argument uh, with wage growth transitions into or expresses itself in inflation and services and goods. So this to me is really one of the things to watch. And ideally for the Fed, they want to see this come down. And it came down, you know, it was 6.7% was the unweighted uh, in July, 6.7%, three-month moving average and median wage growth. Comes down to 6.3 and then ticks back up to 6.4 in October. They don't have it out yet for November. But November, just uh, wage growth on itself, with a, I think year over year was you know five percent. Keep an eye on this, because I don't necessarily think the Fed wants you to lose your job. I think the Fed just wants wages to get back to equilibrium, meaning where there's there's more of a balance, and employers aren't having to pay quite as much to retain people or to attract new employees. And one of the ways that, in theory, you do that is you decrease demand for workers. And you know, if you did get a, a recession, it doesn't have to be a, a massive recession. If companies start to lay off employees, or at least they, they curtail hiring, uh, that could put that back in equilibrium. But I think that's the thing to watch. So the Fed doesn't necessarily want you to lose your job, but it's it's kind of weird to root for bad things if you're invested in markets. And just in general, you don't want bad stuff to happen in the economy. You don't want a recession to happen. You don't want people to lose their jobs. You want people to make more money. Um, but this whole thing has gotten out of whack over the last couple of years between the fiscal stimulus. And in my opinion, that is still the driver of this. You threw money on a fire when there were supply chain problems. And that's the last thing that you want to do up at supply side. Inflation, that's the problem. At the same time, they, they created more demand. So we'll watch this, but I want to just go through the idea of what I think you should be watching and get into a little bit of the numbers on this stuff. And then going back to the, you know, the, the 23 predictions, they were wrong last year, they'll be wrong again, and we'll see what happens in 2023. But as I said, we're going to go through a process uh, same thing we did last year, where I'll have Jay back on, Jay Pestercelli, saying financial, and we'll get our investment committee going. We'll come up with some predictions. We'll have a median, and then we'll do a podcast about it. And we're actually going to pull up our predictions for 22 that we did in December of 21. And I got to tell you, we were wrong. We were right on a lot of stuff. We were we were wrong on some stuff too. And, and I'm not going to bury the headline. You know, a lot of us had the markets going higher, and clearly that didn't happen. But that's why we hedge, and that's why we buffer, and that's the really the uh, the main thing that we do at Zega. So, with that, I'll leave you there. Uh, send me email, send me topics you want me to cover. Uh, I got some questions on the employment stuff this week, so I thought I'd, I'd cover that again. It's a little bit, you know, some of this stuff is not clear. I know it should be clear, and I always remind people that we're not looking at, they're not looking at data. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, they don't have this dashboard with everyone who has a job and everyone who doesn't have a job, everyone who's looking. They're literally taking a survey. And if you survey enough people, you keep the, 
the error rate down or the margin of error down, um, you know, the expected error, that's statistic stuff. But if you get enough people and the sample size is robust enough, then you sort of extrapolate it out of what you think is going on. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll leave it there. We'll be back next week with episode 198. Talk to you all soon. Bye.